just got, this week has been fantastic. Anybody else have a really good week? Anybody have a terrible week? Okay, anybody? Okay. So everybody else has had a mediocre week. That's okay. Um, once in a while, I ask you to raise your hands and kind of engage in, in this together. So um, if you do that, that'd be great. This week has been fantastic for me. There's been a couple things that have happened. I went and saw the movie The Free Burma Rangers. Anybody else see that? Okay, good. Some of us did. Um, it the, the, took my family. We sat there with a bunch of other people. The, the credits rolled. The lights came up. And everybody just kind of sat there and looked at the screen like, what am I doing with my life? Uh, it just was, it was the, it, it impacted me more than any movie has ever impacted me. My, my soul and just my thoughts and what God's doing through Epic Life. And um, if you get the chance to see the free Burma Rangers, see it. I drop everything, cancel things, pay to go see it. And if we get it, if it's on DVD or something like that soon, we'll show it here and, and bring everybody together. It's just phenomenal. It's such a blessing and so encouraging. Uh, look it up. Look at the trailer. Look at kind of how it was it was created. The Free Burma Rangers is so so good. Saw that Monday night and kind of dealing with that in my mind and and actually. I, I was hoping Christine and I would talk about it that night, but we actually couldn't even talk about it, really. It was a couple of nights later that we were able to actually kind of flush that out and talk about it a bit. And, and then the last two, two nights, or the last two days, I've been to uh, Westgate Chapel at a Church Awakening conference, and kind of this, this conference about uh, seeing revival and prayer and uh, uh, awakening the church. And a lot of times we talk about revival, we talk about life change and things happening in our world, and in the, in the long run, um, when, when, our, when we talk about revival in the city, we're talking about a whole bunch of people coming to know Jesus. But that doesn't happen unless there's actual revival. Actual revival is in the life of the, the Christian. Actual revival is here in this community and in the churches around North Seattle. That lives are so dramatically changed and we look at life differently in such a dramatic way that we start doing and acting differently in our world. That's what revival is. That's reviving the hearts of the Christians so that the world looks and goes, what's going on over there? I want a piece of that. And we are in our world and in our workplace sharing the gospel wherever we can. I hope you guys can kind of get this sense with, with who you are as a Christ follower that God has called you to something Something different as a Christ follower. And I hope, I hope your, your salvation hasn't become a personal selfish salvation that you have. You, you kind of keep it to yourself and, and you own it yourself. And when God opens opp- opportunities for you to share that, that you, you just kind of keep it here. You, you keep it really tight like, like this, this is just me and God. And I think that's kind of what the, the evangelical church especially has done over the years. Um, have made it this personal relationship with God. Which it is a personal relationship with Jesus. But but we've made that so much a personal relationship that that personal relationship doesn't go beyond right here. And, uh, and actually, God created the church as a community in unity to show him, to show who he is to the world. And when we ever step away from community and become isolated in our, our own personal worlds, um, that's, that's actually breaking, breaking apart the body of Christ in a way that's not intended it's intended to be um, and and so as I've been kind of going through these passages in Ephesians we're going to go to Ephesians 3 this morning and just thinking about this idea of, of sitting and I don't know how you how you um, 
how you uh, meditate on the word of God. But I want to encourage you guys to, to chew on the word of God. To, to, uh, you know how cows have four stomachs? You ever wonder why they have four stomachs? I would get a little gross for you for a second. Actually, I was raised on a farm. We had a bunch of goats. And, I, and once in a while, you'd go out there, and the, the goat's just standing there. You know, and that's kind of how it goes. And they're like, hum, hum, hum. like they're thinking about something. They're chewing on something. Like there's no grass around. There's no hay. They're just, hum. you know, and so it's chewing their cud. And so here's what happens. Uh, a, a cow and a goat or, and animals like that, deer, they, they eat grass. You know, we can't eat grass because we only have one stomach and it, would, it wouldn't work well in our stomachs. And so they have multiple stomachs. They eat grass and it goes, actually they chew it up a little bit and they kick it into one. It's not actually a separate stomach. It's actually one stomach with four different parts, but they kick it into these two parts. And that's just kind of this holding tank. It kind of holds the, the mash for a little while and it gets a little bit of acid in there and, and the, the, the uh, like sugars start coming out a little bit, but it's kind of a holding tank. And then so they're out there eating and they eat as much as possible, as much as their holding tank will ta- take, right? They fill up their holding tank with all this grass and leaves and straw and whatever. And then, and then they're, they're done eating, they eat a whole bunch. And, uh, and then they go and they stand around like our goats and they'll stand in the barn, just stand there. And, and, and then they'll go, hmm, I'm kind of bored. And so then they, they cough up this holding tank stuff, and they cough it up into their mouth. And, uh, and then they start chewing on that. They start, it's called ruminating, it, ruminating, or chewing their cud is what it's called. And uh, they start chewing on this, and they start chewing, and they, they crunch it down, grind it down, grind it down, and then acids from the mouth starts going to work, and then when they swallow that, it goes into the other stomach, and then transfer it over to the other stomach, which gets broken down, sucked all the, the sugars out, and gets broken down and into the body, blah, blah, blah. So that, though, is how we should be approaching the scripture like we're chewing on it and so it is okay to read a whole bunch read 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 and maybe we kick that into one part and that's why teaching our kids downstairs teaching them bible stories and teaching them the word and 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 bible camp when i just memorize verses over many many verses kind of this this whole bunch of stuff and kicked into that one compartment just to be there and then to once in a while maybe kick back up and and sit on for a while to meditate. Actually, the word meditation actually um, has inferences to chewing your cud, ruminating, sitting, thinking, chewing on scripture, um, and thinking about it. So if if so, we're so busy in life that that we don't find ourselves perhaps chewing on the scripture, sitting long enough. I want to encourage you, please, please. There is so much more to discover and learn when we meditate on the scripture, when we sit on it. Um, the p- pastors who, who come to present a sermon, who look at a verse and then go directly to commentaries to help them fill in their, their sermon points, right? That is, that is a very um, weak and scary way to, to present a sermon, Commentary actually should be last. Do you know what commentary is? Commentary is like Matthew Henry or whoever other great commentary you might go to. He has 
sat for hours and hours and hours chewing and meditating on scripture and writing his thoughts out about what God has shown him. And then, and then what we do is we read the Bible and go to a commentary and go, oh, that's how I'm supposed to think about it. And perhaps that'll give us some theological basises from which to go from, but it won't give us life stuff that God wants to speak to our soul right there and right then. And so when, when, I'm, when I'm looking at the scripture to present it to you on Sunday morning or maybe in Bible study classes that you're, you're part of and you're, you're, you're together with, the goal, I, I would encourage you not to just come unprepared to Bible studies or come unprepared to, to classes and different things. And like, I don't come unprepared here. I don't want to just open the scripture and start, look, and start reading through. I want to sit on it and chew on it and think about it. And so I've been sitting and chewing and thinking about Ephesians, reading it through the whole thing a couple times, going back and understanding the book of Ephesians more and more and more. And so I would encourage you to do the same thing. Read through the book of Ephesians and then read it again and then sit. Allow God to point a word out and sit on that word and and go, God, what is this verse or this verse that we have this morning, which is fantastic. And I just wanted to sit on it and listen to it and, and ruminate on it, chew it to it. So here's the verse this morning. This is Ephesians chapter 3, um, really verse 1 through 13. And if you guys, if, actually why don't you close your eyes and just, just hear this. Hear this. All right. Paul is speaking and he says, when I think about all of this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles. And then there's a big comma. He says, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ or the Messiah. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. So this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all of God's people, He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety in all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Okay, keep your eyes closed. And I want to ask you to to allow the, the film in your mind to start up as I speak these words Um, Just verse 10 through 13, these three verses. Just as I speak these, I want want to encourage you to allow some some pictures to come on, some some color, um, uh, 
some wisdom, perhaps, as you start seeing these words. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authority in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please, don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of it. And I pray that we would sit in your presence, in your word, and allow it to affect us. Lord, that we would allow it to change us. That we wouldn't just read, but we would read and have it change us. I praise you, Lord. And I pray that this morning you would be effective in in our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Didn't want to keep your eyes closed too long because some of you would have fallen asleep after about five minutes. So, I mean, I would personally. Um, So there's a guy named Daniel Bagley. Have you heard this name, Daniel Bagley, in the city of Seattle? A guy named Daniel Bagley. He came across the the continent of America from Indiana, Illinois, somewhere in there. Um, He was a pastor of the Methodist Church. And he came across in 1850 in a covered wagon. Well, maybe not a covered wagon, but some kind of wagon. And he ended up in the Portland area. And he came as a, a minister, a, a, the Methodist minister, preaching, preaching, preaching. The John Wesley um, perspective of the gospel and preaching and hellfire and brimstone. And, and he came in and he started churches in Portland. You know this story, Dave? All right, Daniel Bagley. He came across the country with a couple notable people. Um, one, one name is Mr. Uh, Horton and another name, Mr. Mercer. They came across the, the country and they became, and they, they stopped in Oregon and then they came up the, Oreg, uh, the Oregon and Washington coast and landed in Seattle in about 1852. Seattle was two years old at the time, maybe, maybe not even. The Denny party had arrived and, and a big tracts of land had become farms and ranches and a little tiny um, a town of uh, just box, you know, houses and tents and, and muddy um, streets had started very, very tiny. And uh, Daniel Bagley came in and started a church. The church was called the Little Brown Church, actually, in the city. Um, Daniel Bagley. And, and he started the Little Brown Church, and it grew. And over the years and, and um, over the, the, the decades now has grown and um, up and down. And I don't know exactly where that church was is now, um, but he was, in the Civil War time, he was the only minister, the only clergy in the city of Seattle during the, um, some of the years in the C- Civil War, and he was kind of on the front lines, these, the front line of ministry here, um, starting churches and started this Methodist church downtown Seattle, um, and I got a couple of notes here, I just want to 
talk about some of this. So yeah, in 1860, he started this church called the Little Brown Church in, in the city of Seattle. Daniel Bagley became known then for um, running a mine across um, Lake Washington. Um, I can't remember what mine it was, but it was some kind of ore mine that he was running this business as a pastor at this church that was growing. Uh, he also became um, notable. One of his biggest um, um, things that he did was start the University of Washington, or was a big part of that anyway. Uh, there's, his name is on the University of Washington and a couple other people. Of course, you guys know Mercer who came and, and bought land and sold land and became a wealthy man. Mercer Island is named after him. And um, Horton is another guy who's, there's a bank downtown that's named after him and buildings. He became one of the first banks in the city of Seattle. Daniel Bagley then would be part of the church and leading the church, but also part of business and seeing business thrive in the city of Seattle. And around Daniel Bagley's name then would be this man of God, a man of, uh, uh, who, would, who would be preaching on the weekend and, and, and visiting people and sharing the gospel with people and then leading business and in and out of business and in and out of school. Daniel Bagley School right down the street here is named after Daniel Bagley. Um, and I was, I was doing, I was kind of, something from the last couple of days, something that somebody said, one of the speakers said about, about digging out the wells of, of, our, of our neighborhood, um, discovering what has gone before us, basically, understanding what God has done before us. And Pat shared some things this morning in prayer, kind of about digging out the wells and, and bringing new life. And I just wanted to, I, I'm really interested in, in history, in the history of Seattle and kind of where we're at. And, and part of the history of Seattle, even though it was built on, on single men and a lot of single women in prostitution and single men in greed and the 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 uh, Alaskan gold rush and, and um, timber around here in the rail industry. And it was built on a lot of greed and a lot of business from the very beginning, but also um, uh, a couple of wars that kicked the, the Native Americans out of this neighborhood in some violent ways. This city was built on a lot of bad things, but also inside of that is mixed together some really amazing Christian men and women who started some churches and ministries downtown Seattle. Some of those, the oldest church um, was another Methodist church. I don't know the complete history on that, but that building still stands down there from the mid-1800s. I realized that God, for a long time, he's not just creating something new in Epic Life Church or in the North Seattle pastors and, and, and churches. He's not creating something new, but perhaps he's dug up a well that was, that was the way that he was using Christians for so long in the city, and he's making that happen once again. God has, for a long time, called us to claim the land of this neighborhood, this neighborhood that has, for many years, had just bad things happening. And perhaps, as a church, we're supposed to claim the land and bring something new here, a new perspective. But how is that going to happen? Is, does it happen by a bunch of individuals? Daniel Bagley didn't have um, impact and influence on the city of Seattle because he was one person, but because he actually had a wife that was, uh, or a family that was really involved as well, and uh, he had uh, then a church that became very involved as well. Yeah, his name now is on things, but if it wasn't for the church that he was ministering with and the people that was coming to Christ over that time that also got involved in the city of Seattle, he would have probably have been nothing. The church was instrumental in a lot of the foundations of the city of Seattle. 
So this passage um, is, is when, when I started looking at this and realizing more and more about the whole, the whole book of Ephesians is about the church. And in verse 10, when, when it says God's purposes in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom, I'm like, oh, God, it seemed like there would have been such a better plan out there. Because the church is just wrecked in so many ways. We're, we're a bunch of humans who, who have our own personal barriers and walls and, our, and we have anger issues and we have hurt issues that have come and we, have, we carry all this baggage with, with us into relationships and, uh, and, and even inside the church there's, there's like fighting among church members and in, in churches. I, I, I talked to pastor friends, their, their churches are, are breaking up and, and, and are closing down and people are at war with each other in the church and, and, and we have people who are hurt and, and uh, disinfected Franchised and and uh, and I'm just like wow the tr- you're using the church to display your your wisdom <laughs> that's that's hard you talk to a pastor who had who have been in ministry for 35 40 years and he's going to tell you story after story of disunity um, disagreements disobedience. And churches that are falling apart and hardship and having to deal with people coming to him complaining or something or whatever it is. And I'm like, God, so let me, let me get this right. Let me just read this again so I make sure I got this. God's purpose in all of this, in all of what? His purpose. You know, the word purpose is pushing to, like, why? Why is this happening? What's, what's the thing here? God's purpose. And if we go back and we understand that God has identified us, right? In, in uh, chapter 1, he says... Um, that you who believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. So he's identified us, but for something, for a purpose. So God's purpose in this. Um, At the end of of, of chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us, he identified us, he created us anew in Christ Jesus so that our purpose, so that we could do the good things that he planned for us long ago. And here in, in verse 10 of chapter 3, God's purposes in all of this, and all this mystery, bringing the Gentiles together, all this mystery of, of creating this, this uh, um, group of people from the Gentiles and Jews and linking them together in unity under the blood of Christ, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church. <laughs> so... It's this thing, you know, that, that God uses the people, not the building. And, and we've, we've structured it so that we read this and we go, okay, he's going to use the church, so let's set up a system, right? It's immediately where we go. Set up a system of, of, of this, this building, and we're going we're gonna to get some secretaries, and we're going to get people who are no business, and they're going to take care of this, this thing, and we're going to call it the church, and we're going to have activities that kind of fit in with the church mechanism, this, this system of, of thing that's going to change. And nowhere in here is it talking about that. In fact, the word church... We have to not even look at that as a building. And in our mind, the only word we have for the building where Christians meet is a church. That's the only word we have. And so what this is not talking about the building where Christians meet. It's okay, and it's good for Christians to come together and meet in a building. But this building is not the church. And so, so here, Ephesians 1 talks about us being identified for something, and, and we are identified to display, identified for this purpose, to display 
his wisdom. The church is identified to display his wisdom. I want to just look at this um, wisdom thing. Um, most of your passages, your, your versions, maybe if you're reading through it, is going to say the manifold wisdom. I saw this word manifold. I'm like, I don't know what manifold wisdom is, except is that a, a part in a car, I think, manifold? Uh, so it, that's not what this is, the manifold wisdom. And so um, you might put a comma in here. You might go, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom, comma, in its rich variety. And this rich variety is that manifold word. And so maybe we'd put a comma in, in the way we say it in our minds, wisdom, in its rich variety, kind of thinking rich variety points back to the church. But that's not how this is. The rich variety points back to wisdom. Manifold wisdom, as some of the, the translations will say, or a very a, a various um, aspects of wisdom or something like that. And so the NLT, I love this because it puts this rich variety describing wisdom. So our purpose as a church is just to display his, his wisdom, this wisdom, this, this wisdom of rich variety. Um, the word actually talks about multicoloredness, this, this, this multicolors of wisdom. So God's wisdom, that our responsibility is to display God's wisdom in its multicolors. Very beautiful, multicolored wisdom. That's our responsibility as a church. Interesting. We're also supposed to, as, as the Bible points out, to tell people about Christ. That's our, 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 our mission, our commission, right? Is our, our commandment is to love others and go and tell others about Christ. But he's chosen the church in in who we are, to display his wisdom. Well, it gets a little bit crazier, actually. So it keeps going. In, in, so wisdom in its rich variety, we're supposed to display that to who? To the world? <laughs> no, actually, that's, that's not it. We're not, supposed to, we're not here to display God's rich, various, rich, colorful wisdom to the world. We're actually are displaying the beauty of his wisdom to the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And so to me, immediately, I realize that what, what is going on here is not God saying, this is what I want you to do, church. Instead, it's him saying, this is what I'm doing through the church. It's a big difference there. If we think that this is what I'm supposed to do as a church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to the unseen world, then I've got to figure out how to display that wisdom to the unseen world. And I guarantee you, we cannot figure that part out. We can discover a little bit how to display God's wisdom to people, the seen world, but the unseen world? This passage is about what God is doing, he is doing through the church, that he is displaying the church to the unseen world. So to the, the enemy and to the angels, the unseen world and the heavenly places. Crazy, right? It's not about what we're doing. It gives me a lot of confidence, but it also makes me go, wow, God, that's scary. Do, does the church display your wisdom? Does it display, and what is this colorful wisdom? What is this? Well, I, I think that the colorful wisdom idea, um, the, the Greek word, look it up someday, but it's a really beautiful, long word that's really cool to say. Um, I think that, that colorful 
wisdom is something that we don't understand as humans. We kind of get this thing. Paul says it many times in here. He says, this is a mystery. I'm explaining to you a mystery that we don't understand. When he's saying, I explain to you a mystery, it's because he doesn't understand it even. He can't quite get this. Like, why would God take the Jewish world and bring the Greeks together, make them into this thing, and then call them a church so that he can display the beauty of his wisdom to the unseen world? I don't really understand how this is working out. But the thing is, is that this is what God is doing, that this was his purpose all along, is to display. And so God has displayed things to the unseen world for eons. Adam and Eve, he started in creation, displaying his glory to humans, absolutely, but to the unseen world, displaying his glory. There's places in the Bible that the angels are looking into it going, wow, this is beautiful. I wonder what this is about. This is, this is us thinking beyond our physical realm. We would love this to say uh, God's purpose in all this was the church to display his wisdom to the seen rulers, to those people, the, uh, the rulers of the city and the rulers of our country, to those places, not in the heavenly places, but those places right here among us. We can kind of grasp that. But we can't grasp this as much. That, God is, that Paul is saying, that, that God is presenting, that there is an unseen world that's looking into the things of humanity, and they're wondering as well, going, wow, this is amazing what you are doing, God. What is the church? The church is made up of a people. What God has done in making the church is brought together people who are different. And the thing about just, just the Jewish people, they were all the same. They were all in a family. They knew each other. They knew what was going on. They knew the rules. They knew how to behave. They came from the same backgrounds. When people were married inside of that, they knew the rules of marriage. They knew the rules to gather in a city. They knew the rules to gather around a synagogue. They knew all the rules, right? And when you bring that world together with the Gentile world that had its own set of rules and behaviors and, and tribes and how to treat people and how not to treat people and bring in all that together, you have something pretty chaotic that could happen. But instead, what happens is this idea called unity. Unity in the church. The best communism is a church. But the reason communism doesn't work in the world is because it's led by humans. And anytime you have humans leading a commune, you have a bad thing going on, right? Because they want power. We want power. Commune together in unity, loving each other and caring for each other. The, peop the, the unseen world is looking in on that and going, wow, how is this even possible? I'm going to turn to Joshua 1.8. Some of you know the passage Joshua 1.9 by heart for sure. Um, I just want to read Joshua 1.8 here. And just, just as we sit on this, this thought for just a little bit. Joshua 1.8. Joshua is, is uh, Old Testament right after the first five books of the Bible. It's the sixth book of the Bible. It's about a man named Joshua that followed Moses, was Moses' right-hand man, would actually take the children of Israel into the promised land. And he's, he's looking at the promised land, and he's going, whoo, I don't know, God. <laughs> this seems kind of scary. And throughout these passages, God says to him over and over and over, be strong and courageous, Joshua. So here he is in, in verse 8, in Joshua 1, 8. 
um, 1.7, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either from the right or to the left, then you'll be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction. Meditate on it. Ruminate. Meditate on it day and night. So you will be sure to obey everything that's written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. And really what he's talking about this time is the first five books of the Bible. That's all they had. They had the Torah. And so God is saying to Joshua, meditate on the Torah. Meditate on these words from Genesis through Deuteronomy. Meditate on this. Make it part of you. Make it part of your soul. Um, Think about it. Those hard things that are in there that you don't understand, sit and think about them for a little bit. Don't just go to commentary. So only then you'll prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Church, this is the same word to us. Um, God God calls us to be strong and courageous, but out of the strong and courageous heart, it's not just mustering up a strong and courageous heart. He's saying meditate on the word day and night so we know what we're about. We know. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. This is not a, this is not God saying, Joshua, you're screwing up. If you would just do this, everything would be fine. He's just encouraging, don't miss out on this. Don't miss out on this. Meditate on the scripture. Meditate. Men and women, there is no guilt here or condemnation. I'm just encouraging you, meditate on the scripture because it adds something to our lives. It makes us go deeper in our understanding. It allows us to sit on a passage like this that we can't quite understand and sit and listen to the Lord say something. And so just a little sidebar. How do you meditate on the scripture? Um, There's lots of different ways to do that. Lots of different ways. I want to encourage you not to go to commentary immediately. Not to go to a book immediately. Not to go to somebody else immediately. Read the scripture. Read it again. Maybe read it again. Uh, Maybe have a journal next to you that you're writing um, a word. When I first looked over this, I just read, I wrote purpose, church. And a question mark by it. Because my mind was going, what? Right? Meditate on that. Allow God to just point things to you. And maybe, maybe journal some things out. You don't always have to write and journal. But sometimes when you write and journal, it actually helps your mind engage differently. It actually keeps you from being distracted by the world that's coming in and pull, pushing in and, and pointing and, and saying things. And your, your mind's always going, you know, if you've meditated for any amount of time, your mind just goes and goes and goes. Writing some things down generally helps your mind kind of stay focused on what God's telling you, attempting to say to you. And then return to that passage, maybe at the end of the day, throughout the day, day and night. Obviously, Joshua wasn't sitting on a... Uh, a hill with his legs folded and his arms out day and night meditating on the scripture. That wasn't what he was doing. He was leading an army into the promised land. But he's still encouraged to meditate day and night. So how do we do that? Um, some, sometimes people will carry maybe a three by five card with the verse on it and just read that verse again. Or maybe it's just asking God, God, would you remind me through this day what you're telling me and what you're speaking to me on this passage? Lord, You are saying something in this passage. Would you help me understand it? 
Plead with God to help you understand what he's saying. Wrestle with him. Wrestle with the passage. Chew on it. Go over it again. Read it in a different translation so you understand it better. There's Bible study tools online over and over and over, but don't get bogged down in in trying to figure Greek out. None of us are Greek scholars here. None of us are Hebrew scholars. Those people can't even figure some of this stuff out. So you can go there and understand some stuff, but don't don't get bogged down in that. Read the word more and more and and grab a hold of this stuff and and allow God to teach you in it, to insert his, his wisdom in it. We as a community have been called with a purpose. That purpose is to display his wisdom. I'm not going to bounce around too much, but over in Hebrews, it says something about the church. Hebrews 13. uh, Hebrews 10, I'm sorry. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but re- encourage one another, especially now that the day draws near. Who knows when the day is going to come near or nigh or when we, we end the day. But this purpose of the church, we as the church, this unified body of Christ came in, coming together, um, a community, community without a dictator. This is a brand new thing that God brought about the scene in the world, in the un, unseen world. Here's what, there was no such thing as a church community before the church of Jesus Christ. It didn't exist. Worship Temple was temple worship, worship for deities and gods and, and all the religions of the earth forced you to go to a, a shrine and bow down be, before an idol that somebody had made with their hands and sacrifice uh, your stuff, your, your lambs, sometimes your own children at the idol of this God. You would go there and, and there wasn't a church, there wasn't a community around that. Um, There's this individual worship of this God and being afraid. Most religions was, was religions out of fear. What would happen if they didn't go and, and do this? What would happen to them? And so it wasn't a community of people. Sometimes they gathered in mosh pits, but it wasn't necessarily a community. It was in, so individually driven. God's created something different with the church. It's not an individually driven purpose. This didn't happen. There was no such thing as a church community type of thing for, for anything. This was brand new. People coming together and worshiping God together, not at individuals, not my personal Jesus, but together as a community, together in grace and forgiveness. And this community started doing different things. It started reaching out to the poor and going into the front lines. It started taking care of the, the, pl- the people of, of plagues, even though they were getting the illness themselves, but caring for them and loving them and bringing them to health. Now, I'm not going to say anything about the coronavirus, even though I just did. So, but that was the thing. Christians going in. The Free Burma Rangers, when you see Free Burma Rangers, what they were doing was going to the front line of the Civil War in Burma, Myanmar, and rescuing people, and then going into Mosul in, in ISIS-controlled territory, going into the front, front lines where the bullets were flying and rescuing people out. They were going, this is the church. And over the centuries, people would be amazed at the church. What? What is this? 
How are these people doing this? Even leaders of the Roman Empire would go, I don't understand these Christians. They're doing nice things and caring for each other. And they're, they're caring for other people who don't even belong to them. How is this possible? And God is using the church to actually display his wisdom to the unseen world even more, even though humans are, are wowed about this, but the unseen world. So here's, here's where my mind is thinking about the unseen world. There are, the enemy is real. There is a real enemy. Uh, there are real demons, and there's a real uh, uh, Satan who is a, the leader of the demons. And there are, are ways to worship and be part of that world for humans. And for so many years, Satan has had his grasp on humanity, worship me this way, pull aside, pulling people apart, destroying humanity, and something different. And I feel like, I feel like God's presenting this thing, the church, his body of, the body of Christ is working together in unity when it's working really well, working together in unity. And the unseen world is going, wait, what? That happens? You can do that? This doesn't even make sense. These are humans. These are selfish people. How can they work together? We've seen for, for eons that we've drug them through the muck and the mire because of their selfish in, in, uh, uh, motivations. How can they be working together? How is this even possible? So the colorful wisdom of God, which we don't completely understand, this mysterious thing is presented to the, unseen, the rulers of the air saying, look, they don't need you. They have the unity of believers together as the body of Christ. They don't need you, Satan. They are free from the bondage and the power of sin over their lives. So to wrap this up, the rest of this passage is really, really cool. Don't miss this. Verse 12, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come, what, boldly and confidently into God's presence. This continues the mystery of this, this wisdom that God has done. He's opened the curtain between us and him. That we can go boldly to God. Men and women, if you're finding yourself approaching God, but there's a veil or you're approaching God through someone else or through somebody else's uh, uh, commentary or through, uh, you, you just, you're approaching God through what you, kind of the constructs of religion that's come be- behind you or something like that, know that you can come directly into the throne room of God. The, the curtain was ripped when Jesus died. The th- curtain was ripped so that we could walk in and, and go into the Holy of Holies and talk with God, plead with God, um, um, pray to God, face to face. He has given us, because of Christ, because of the Messiah, and our faith in him, that mixture of him choosing us and us believing in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Church, you can walk into the presence of God boldly and confidently um, and, and travailing in prayer before God. And in verse 13, so please do not lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored with that. This is an eternal plan that God has set up in verse, verse 11, this eternal plan. Now you can come boldly and confidently before God. Men and women, you are on display. The church is on display. Hmm. <laughs> We're not just on display for the city. We're on display for the unseen rulers of this. Of, of this. That to me, that is something that's remarkable. That there's so much more than just us. And we all know this. When it really comes down to it, we all know there's so much more than just us. You're on display. 
So when a person is on display and they know they're on display, like maybe a stage performer, something happens um, that can be dangerous but also can be beautiful. Something happens is we start acting. And we start doing things and we start, we start becoming somebody else. God doesn't need us somebody else. They need us. Or God needs us <laughs> to display, right? And so sometimes when we're on stage, we start acting. Preachers do it all the time. They start becoming some other preacher, right? They start talking in different voices. Um, I was listening to Jim Cimbala uh, a couple nights ago and, and him just saying, you know, the, the church doesn't need another Jim Cimbala. The church doesn't need a, an, another, you name uh, Francis Chan or you name the pastor. The church doesn't need, the church needs who God has brought to the church. <laughs> and so we as a community shouldn't start acting because we're on stage, but we should we could, we could realize that we're on stage and we can be who we're supposed to be. Men and women, you are, you are part of changing the, the, the mind, maybe, of the unseen world. But like Daniel Bagley, God used that church to change the landscape of Seattle. And I think God's using this church to change the landscape of 105th and Aurora. But we can't just be doing... Acts, we have to be meditating on the scripture and praying and seeking God's direction in our life so that this mystery will happen even better, more beautifully. The colorful wisdom of God will be on display even more. How beautiful is that, right? So good.